Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. It's a pleasure to be here with Dr. Lila Corwin-Berman, who's professor of history at Temple University. She holds the Murray Friedman Chair of American Jewish History and directs the Feinstein Center for American Jewish History. She's the author of three books, including the forthcoming The American Jewish Philanthropic Complex, The History of a Multi-Billion Dollar Institution, which will be released early this fall from Princeton University Press. Professor, thank you for taking time to talk. Of course. Thanks for having me. So... Um, is, is our American Jewish community financially sustainable without the impact of mega donors? So I would say yes. However, it's a very qualified yes because it could only really be sustainable if there were changes to major structures and policies. Um, and that would most importantly be a big one, which is the ability for the very wealthy to accumulate wealth um, in such a sort of disproportionate amount to other people. So absolutely, it's sustainable without mega donors, but it's not given the current structures and policies that we're living in. Okay, just to take a step back, what is the problem with a community that is based on mega donors? So the problem has to do with the distribution of power. Um, it's very difficult to be beholden to a few very large donors and to function as anything other than a kind of oligarchy. Um, even if those donors have the most generous hearts and are so well-meaning and just wonderful, wonderful human beings, um, it, it's a very difficult structure to have a, a sustainable community where multiple voices are represented and feel as if they have a say when there is a very small number of people who are really in control of the resources. Is there, is there a particular problem you could point to either abstractly or concretely where this has been manifest, um, either historically or, or in this moment? Um, there, there are all sorts of ways that this has been manifest. Um, if, if you wanna think historically, um, you know, there's a tendency to kind of romanticize how the Federation structure in the United States worked in the earlier decades of the 20th century, and it was a, a slightly more democratized form of power distribution, but we also know that the people who had the, the chairs on the boards and who were involved in the most important distribution committees um, had a lot of say in which agencies got funded and which ones didn't. So I read through all the minutes of the uh, New York Federation starting at its founding in 1917, um, well into the 1960s and 1970s. And you can see people like Jacob Schiff or like um, 
like Felix Warburg, different people who had a great deal of power. Um, when Jacob Schiff died, he wrote in his will, I'm willing to give the Federation $500,000, but it has to change an essential practice, an essential financial practice that it had had. And in a meeting, they changed that practice and they took that money. And that practice actually was about holding on to endowment funds, which it had not done beforehand. Um, if you want to think in more current day terms, I think there are all sorts of ways that um, organizations like Hillel, for example, have been really affected in terms of the politics of some of their largest donors when it comes to Israel, and then different kinds of standards for the conversations that can happen in Hillel. So um, these are material effects that that this kind of very unequal distribution of power has. Right. I, I, okay. I have so many thoughts and questions on that, but to, just to move on, what what are the most valuable comparisons through which to understand American Jewish philanthropy? Is it more similar to Jewish philanthropy in other national contexts? Or is it more similar to American philanthropy in non-Jewish contexts? Right. So this is a really um, interesting question to me. And a lot of the scholarship on American Jewish philanthropy um, up to this point has wanted to kind of place it in the uh, larger sweep of Jewish history and to say, you know, look, there's this long tradition of tzedakah, of tikkun olam, um, you know, of, of Jews really looking out for the, all of the members of the community in a way to help and uplift everybody and that this has happened in all sorts of places they've lived, especially when they've been excluded from other power structures. Um, and I think that you can find historical through lines, absolutely, that make American Jewish philanthropy connected to philanthropic endeavors in other places where Jews have lived. However, I think, and I argue in my work, policies of the American state, especially in its kind of most formative uh, state expansion period of the early to mid 20th century, that those policies really shaped American Jewish philanthropy into something that makes it much more similar to the political and economic structures of the United States than really to anything else. You really, I think, can see the imprint of the American state on American Jewish philanthropy more than anything else. Wow, wow, so interesting. So um, another, another huge can. How, how does gender play into the internal politics of um, large philanthropic organizations today? Oh, well, you might ask, how doesn't it? Um, <laughs> you know, um, so look, historically, um, it's, it's really the case that there was a very, very important shift. And here I'm thinking of work that my colleague Beth Wenger has done, um, where, you know, charity work in the United States in the late 19th century, early 20th century, in the progressive era, was about benevolence, and it was often seen as a sort of feminized realm. So too was it in the Jewish context. And you actually had, at that turn of the century moment, a lot of Jewish women who were organizing charitable efforts, who were really leading charitable organizations, dealing with financial matters, administrative matters, and taking on a kind of public form of power um, in, in really profound ways. And there's then a shift that starts to happen as the kind of, um, in a sense, the scientific management, the kind of expertise uh, infrastructure is developed, most uh, pointedly through the structure of federation, um, that that benevolent and feminized charitable work moves into um, a more kind of masculinized, expert-driven uh, kind of model of federation. So you have agencies that become sort of part of the federation structures um, primarily run by men, 
which is a major shift, whereas women had really been at the helm of many of those organizations. So that's one shift that was really important. And in the research that I've done, um, you know, you're hard pressed from the 1920s to the 1980s, I would say, to even find a woman's name in any of the kind of institutional documents of most of American Jewish philanthropy. Um, you have first sort of the proprietors of businesses and bankers calling the shots. There's a sort of shift um, to lawyers being very, very important in Jewish philanthropy, and finally a shift to people working in finance. Um, and, and so women really have not been um, part of these kinds of philanthropic discussions. Um, and then there's one other thing I just want to mention briefly, um, which is that there are ways in which, especially from the 1960s forward, um, that conversations about the purpose of Jewish, of American Jewish philanthropy have focused on ideas of Jewish continuity or survival, and that the anxieties wrapped up in those conversations and how um, you know, funding streams should flow have tended to alight on women's bodies and on their reproductive decisions or their reproductive capabilities, abilities, whatever it might be. Um, and so there's been a kind of persistent objectification of women and their role or they're not playing their role properly in this kind of discussion of Jewish identity and Jewish continuity. And I think we've seen that really play out, um, especially from the kind of 1970s, 1980s, 90s to our, to our own moment. Very interesting, very interesting. So um, uh, another justice-related question. What is the relationship, I mean relationships, between American Jewish philanthropy and the increasing American socioeconomic inequality? Um, and sort of how Jews are navigating sort of both ends of that. Right, well, you know, I think that that kind of inequality really structures philanthropy in many ways. Um, right. You know, it's, it's in a certain sense, I think it's almost a truism, right? That if there weren't massive inequality, there wouldn't be philanthropy. And it's not just that, well, if there weren't massive inequality, people wouldn't need the goods of philanthropy but that there literally wouldn't be the capital, the flexible capital to channel into philanthropic endeavors, right? So the same problem that many ph philanthropists say they're trying to solve, right? You know, kind of writ large, the problem of some people not having the resources to sort of live their best lives um, is exacerbated by the very kinds of mechanisms that also enrich and fuel philanthropy. So there's a complicated, um, kind of relationship, I think, between philanthropy and inequality and the need that philanthropy has precisely for inequality. Wow. So uh, would you go so far to say that Jewish institutional leadership um, are in some ways morally complicit with how funds are generated in America? I mean, looking at the issues of gender, of wealth, of power imbalance, the problematic nature of philanthropy as a structure today, I mean, how does, um, how do staff people who are involved in development of, of, you know, holding up organizations view, aside from the massive structural change that has to happen collectively, their own moral complicity in such a system? Right. I, you know, look, this is, this is incredibly difficult. And, and the way I start my book is actually with, it, it feels like something you would say on, you know, Yom Kippur or something. I sort of like try to give an enumeration of my own complicity, right? 
Um, and, and I say, all of us would be hard pressed not to be complicit in this, right? Because it is so structural, it is so systematic or systemic. Um, so, so I, but I don't want that to be an out either. Um, and I have felt with this project in particular um, that there are some constructive elements that can come out of it, right? Like so often an academic just sort of stands a bit back and surveys whatever the landscape is about a particular question. And that, that is what I do, that's where my home is. Yeah. Um, but I do think that there are some practices that could be implemented that could at the very least um, kind of right balance. I see sort of philanthropy as trying to chart a middle ground between capitalism and democracy. And it's, I think, just pretty much veered to capitalism. Um, and, and there's all sorts of ways, and this is not just Jewish philanthropy, right? This is American philanthropy. There are all sorts of ways that I think more than anything else, it's sort of a, hand, a handmaiden of capitalism at this point. That need not be the case, right? And there are ways, for example, by re-empowering communities to have a role in decision-making about where philanthropic money goes. So if I'm a philanthropist and I wanna help your community, instead of my saying, okay, here are the priorities and here's some money, and I'm helping you, um, the community can start to see the assets that I'm giving as the community's assets, right? As opposed to as just a sort of gift, right? And that can be an incredible um, and powerful practice. People sometimes call it participatory grant making um, that can really kind of push things, I think, more toward the side of of democracy, right? So, so I think there are things, in other words, yes, there's huge structural change, um, that would be necessary to really get at the roots of these problems of inequality. But there are also ways that practices could shift to, to change the course. And, and by and by, I think, to awaken people to those larger structural issues that ultimately would have to change. Right. Wow. You know, I, I feel like you're such a courageous, wise voice in this conversation that I've seen play out. And um, we're just so fortunate that you're 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 leading us to think about this so deeply. Uh, just one last question for today. Um, uh, although I'd love to continue for hours, um, how has the coronavirus started to alter the American Jewish philanthropic landscape? And um, with some hope that the world won't just return to normal as we knew it, but there are structural shifts that can happen. In what way do we see negative shifts happening? Uh, if, if at all, in what way do we see positive shifts happening at all? At all, and how can we kind of uh, use this unique time period to to kind of leverage greater transition? Right. Like so, one thing I've been thinking about, and you can think about this in historical terms or just sort of personal terms, right? That um, you know, I think crisis can it can certainly shake up norms, and I think that's how we're seeing it spoken about right now. But crisis can also lead us to really hold tight. <laughs> to norms because we feel so unmoored. Um, and, you know, it, it's of course quite different, but like in 2008, when there was a major financial crash and when all of the criminal uh, dealings of, of Bernie Madoff were exposed, there was a moment, I think, when people thought, this is really gonna change like how this financial engine powers our, our country and certainly how it powers the Jewish world because the Madoff stuff, such profound implications. Um, and it really didn't. Yeah. I mean, it really profoundly didn't. Yeah. And so, so I feel like at this moment, you know, I'm 
I'm just sort of watching and, you know, there's this incredible $90 million or notionally $90 million fund that a bunch of Jewish philanthropists and Jewish, so it's foundations and federations have put together to be a kind of relief fund. And, um, you know, it's incredible and there's, there's need and, and these folks are seeing it and trying to fill those gaps. The way that right now I see that money working um, is not convincing me that anybody is really trying to shift any of these norms. Um, you know, the, the, the process itself, the lack of transparency, and again, it's not for nefarious aims, right? People feel really buffeted and they feel hurt and they feel like it's dangerous. And so you kind of fall onto the systems that you have. Um, and the problem is that they can really reinforce them. Right, so if we have this $90 million fund and nobody's saying how this money is going to be reported and whose voices are gonna matter and having a say about allocations and whether it's gonna be more important to like help all those furloughed workers or to continue to send kids to Israel or whatever it might be, um, it doesn't seem to me like there's much of an opening for the norms to be changed. And that's, that's why like it, it seems so important that all of us um, hold people to and hold these funders to some kind of accountability, right? And demand as much transparency as possible. And we can demand that because roughly a third of that money is our money because of the way that the tax code works. Um, and that knowledge, I think, ultimately is going to help everybody more. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Uh, friends, um, you have to check out the American Jewish Philanthropic Complex, the history of a, a multi-billion dollar institution. Is that available yet? No, I think it's available for pre-order, um, but it, it is coming out in October. Great. And, and other um, amazing articles and books by Dr. Lana Corin Berman. So thank you, Professor, for taking this time. Thanks so much.